Does that need to be our cold open? I'd like some ribs with a side of corruption. Yes. And some french fries. Something to soothe my soul. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Good to see you. Uh, to my co-hosts, I can't see you. Listeners, you could you could email us pictures. No, don't do that. That gets risky in a hurry. Anyway, uh, Bailey Perkins, right? Good to see you. Good to see you, Andy. Hello, Scott Melson. Good to see you. What is up, man? You know the uh, just another Friday night in the big town here in Oklahoma. Uh, listeners, we are nearing the end of the state legislative session, possibly as little as a week away. If the rumors are true and they, you know, I don't, they're not never true. Sometimes they're true, but I expect in the next couple of weeks, the legislature will signy die. We'll talk about where they're at now in that process and, or at least where we think, because it's a bit of a black hole up there. We will definitely talk about some barbecue and some shenanigans because that yet again is in the news. Uh, We'll talk about some weed unrelated to, uh, you know, snacks or anything. And uh, and then just general updates on Oklahoma like transitions. Yeah, transitions. That's right. State agency transitions and just where things are at, uh, you know, with Oklahoma politics and government and civic engagement in our state. So let's uh, let's start with where things are at. Quite literally, with Sunny Die uh, nearing us, that means uh, that the big discussion is the budget, of course. However, I have not heard very much in terms of like hard and fast data. No proposals have been released publicly, which is not uncommon, but usually there's some indication, but it's been pretty tightly locked down up there. Bailey, you are probably at the Capitol more than Scott and I. Have you heard anything? Well, I will say for the listeners, I've been out for the past couple of weeks for uh, work, uh, I'm not work, Lord, for building my home um, and for wrapping up um, a leadership Oklahoma experience. And so, but a couple of things that I have heard as of late um, has been just the differences in what members of the House and members of the Senate want to see, right? Um, in one branch, there is uh, in our chamber, I guess I should say, not branch. Um, in one chamber, there's an appetite for tax cuts. And in another chamber, there is no appetite, right? And, and and I would say even more nuclear than um, chambers, certain members want to see broad tax cuts while others um, want to, you know, monitor this time because they know that, you know, it's not going to be money flowing forever um, in the ways that it is now. What we're experiencing as a state is an anomaly. And so um, I, I, I heard that uh, even uh, Chairman Thompson wasn't interested in exploring massive tax cuts this legislative session. So um, I guess the reason it's been so tight lipped, as my guess, is that there's still. Um, a number of negotiations happening to figure out what 
um, the appetite is of members and where they can find a compromise. Like for instance, um, on the grocery sales tax. So there's been conversation um, over the past year about eliminating the state portion of the sales tax on groceries. But there's a few proposals that are still alive out there. For example, one proposal would temporarily exempt the state portion of the sales tax uh, for the next couple of years, because we know that we do have, you know, a few dollars thanks to um, the federal investments that have been made in this time. Um, but then there's a proposal that would permanently remove it, which would mean that 300 plus million dollars, you know, would be permanently taken out of our state budget. And then there's another proposal related to the sales tax relief credit um, that is currently in place, but it's a really, really low amount because it hasn't been updated in like 20, 30 years. And so there's a proposal to boost that credit up to maybe something like $120 that then serves almost like as a rebate to Oklahomans to get that money back during their tax season. And so there's a number of different proposals out there and it's all going to tie to, you know, what is the appetite? There's still um, rumors of the legislature giving uh, Oklahomans, you know, about a $125 check um, as an income tax rebate, or they could reduce a bracket of the income tax again, which would mean permanently right, uh, reducing that revenue source. And so I don't think there's um, an exact understanding yet of what proposal is going to be moving forward. But what I have heard is that the more temporary um, relief options are the ones that have the greatest appetite, especially because there's a number of members who were there at the Capitol about five, six years ago, <laughs> when we had to figure out how to, you know, patch holes in the budget to not make the, the ship sink, right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see Andy, because, um, and, and this is not um, unusual, right, for the legislature. This is on par with the way it's always been to where there are um, six or seven people talking sitting in a room and then one day boom a bill drops and it's the budget right and that's what i suspect this go around is you know within the next week or so there's going to be a day or maybe a big press conference or something and boom the budget's going to drop so i guess we'll all see it is interesting because you know bailey as you pointed out like these these negotiations they they're this i mean this is how it always plays out right like the budget negotiations happen between leadership they happen behind closed doors and that's for a bunch of reasons. Some of them are good reasons. Some of them are bad reasons. But sometimes those negotiations spill out, right? Like sometimes those negotiations, there are, there's, uh, there's leakage, right? Sometimes there's stories or and rumors and dueling press conferences. We've had mm -hmm. that a couple of years, uh, you know, over over the budget negotiations. That has not happened this year. Um, you know, I one one thing I have heard that I feel pretty confident about. Obviously, uh, as you guys know, I'm not in the budget negotiations; they don't invite me. But um, uh, but one thing I have heard that I I feel pretty confident is we. There's been a lot of wondering about whether or not uh, Senator Treat's voucher bill was going to come back uh, as part of the budget negotiations. I've heard that's off the table. I've heard that that is not happening this year. Uh, that will probably make an appearance next year, I think. But that's uh, the the voucher bill looks like it is dead for the time being, and it's not going to be part of the budget. What I've heard, but maybe that's, that's 
Yeah, I mean, who knows? That's really interesting, though, Scott, because what, I, what I've what i heard, and I think Bailey's heard the same thing because we've been on some of the same calls recently, is that one of Treat's other bills, uh, uh, Senate Joint Resolution, SJR 43, which I think we mentioned in passing early on in session, and I think a lot of us thought, or at least hoped, that it was dead. It is not. It's uh, a reminder so, that nothing is dead until it's dead. That's Those exactly zombies right. zombies still float around. Uh, <laughs> and so I would assume that it is part of these negotiations. Now, we'll talk about this because it is not actually a, a revenue-related measure. Uh, and so it's somewhat unusual that it's still around. And 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 so this measure, uh, SJR 43, would essentially remake the entire judicial branch of our government, right? From like the top down, uh, not the state Supreme Court. So not all the way to the top, but it would do away. Well, I guess even the state Supreme Court, honestly, it would do away with the judicial nominating committee. It would uh, effective, it would replace all of the judges that are on retention ballots or elected ballots. Now it would take most of them at the end of their term they would not be able to run for re-election. They would have to be appointed by whomever's the governor at that time that their term is up. So it would institute a ton of governor-appointed judges. And then for the what they call the inferior judges, like lower down district courts, some of that stuff, those would be elected, but they would be partisan elections. It just says they'd be elected in the same manner as the county officials. So it'd be partisan elections. So it would effectively partisanize judges that aren't already partisan races. It would allow the governor to appoint a ton of them, and it would do away with the oversight, right? The check that we have in the judicial nominating committee, which which nominates three judges for the state Supreme Court, or the Court of Civil Appeals, and then the governor picks from one of those three. And in doing this, um, it would it would mark a dramatic shift in how Oklahoma's judicial branch is organized. And according to Senator Treat, this would make it align with more like England's system, is what Treat has said. Now, it should be noted that the United States uh, and the framers of our U.S. Constitution and our state intentionally did not design the judiciary to be like British's, uh, the British system, right? So this is a- Oklahoma's very populist. We want a say in everybody, including dog catcher, right? Like that's always, you know, the, the running joke, but it's the reason we're one of the, you know, few areas where we're electing all of these different judges in different positions, and then they have to go on the retention ballot, you know, every so often. And so we do have, um, infrastructure in place that allows Oklahomans to have that say on judges. And if there's somebody that Oklahomans don't like, we can put them out as process. And I think the other piece to mention, Andy, is that this isn't just an Oklahoma idea that just came out of thin air um, for um, Senator Treat and, and others who are supporting this uh, joint resolution. This is part of a national strategy and an agenda that's uh, an idea that's floating across the country um, as a way to not only just make elections more partisan, but also to ensure that um, people can affiliate with an ideology and then have more 
I'd say, control over outcomes of, of what comes out of the courts based on people's philosophies. So he really said that this would make our system more like the British system. Mm-hmm. That's his justification. Didn't didn't we fight a war to keep our shit from being like the British system? Wasn't like like wasn't that the whole thing? <laughs> like we want to do our stuff differently than the way the Brits do it. And don't kid yourself. I'm an Anglophile. I love England. Right? The Brits are great, but like. You know, and I also say when I've, we've talked about this in the show, I think there are myriad problems with the fact that we elect judges and that we uh, we have judges uh, that are that uh, uh, are put in office by uh, popular vote. Like in my opinion, that is not the way to do it. But the correct way to do it is not to just have the governor appoint them, right? Like the correct way to do it for me would be actually to like expand the judicial nominee commission and give them more power and like let them pick all of the judges this is a way to like deprofessionalize the judiciary right like this is a, this is a way to get people uh to get judges in office that um you know the the politicians who are appointing them feel confident they're going to rule the way that they want not what the law says right like that's and as you guys said, you know, I think there's a recognition, um, uh, 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 certainly on the part of the Republicans, that um, partisanship is increasingly becoming the primary identity by which people identify themselves, right? Um, and that drives, that's a powerful motivating factor. Um, and so if you can make, if you can make, if your goal, if your goal is political power, if you can further make things partisan, um, especially in a state like Oklahoma, where you have an overwhelming partisan advantage, um, you're just building in structure to retain that power, make that power as deeply entrenched for as long as possible. Um, I think, you know, there's already a lot of pushback on this, right? I think the Bar Association has pushed back on this pretty hard. Um, there have been some, like, uh, pretty... Uh, have we had like some former like Supreme Court justices? Have we? There's been some pretty high profile people who have spoken out about this, right? Yeah. So the the bar the Oklahoma Bar Association is, I think, uh, formally op- opposed to this. Um, the the Trial Lawyers Association is also uh, opposed. And in fact, I'll this is the the message that the Bar Association put out um, on Thursday the fifth, which was yesterday as we're recording this it says this measure would among other things give the legislature jurisdiction over regulation of portions of the practice of law which could have a direct impact on the quality of legal services the repeal of the current constitutional language because this this measure would repeal um the state constitution article 7a and 7b um so it repeal those that would remove district courts from existence and would completely change how justices and appellate judges are appointed. It would require judicial candidates for quote, inferior courts that are created by the legislature to run for office like other County offices. The dissolution of the district courts would result in chaos in both civil and criminal matters, costing clients delays and unanticipated expenditures due to the absence of applicable court rules and procedural statutes. In addition, and another thing, this would create a uh, a 
two class, like a bifurcated class of attorneys in our state. So there would be attorneys uh, that have, uh, you know, gone to law school and passed the bar and practiced before the courts. And then other attorneys who do not appear before the court, um, those would be licensed uh, and regulated by the legislature. So uh, that doesn't sound like a terrible idea at all. Yeah. So I looked into this and you would have to like go to law school and then basically do an apprenticeship under a judge or another attorney. And then the legislature would, would be the holder or the, uh, the awardee of your, your law license. And like, first of all, we don't need two classes of lawyers. Secondly, this like just changes the system in some really fundamental and highly concerning ways, not just to me, a non-lawyer, non-judge, just a guy, but also to like the state bar association, to judges, to, and it's not a protection thing for them. The bar association is concerned with like the rule of law and how it is practiced. And do we have adequate laws, statutes, and rules to govern that? And this would do away with all of that. And that's uh, not exactly what we need as a state right now. We definitely don't need that because we're already a hyper-partisan society. There's already so much division, and this just further politicizes an entity that we relied on to be blind in its interpretations, right, to be that entity that evaluates constitutionality on, you know, a a myriad of, of issues. And that, you know, from that lens as well is another concern because now we're going to be um, leaning on people who have, you know, an R or a D behind their names to make certain decisions rather than thinking about it from the lens of, is this applicable to the constitution or is it not? Um, One of the complaints that supporters of this joint resolution often reference is the fact that they feel that there's an increased amount of judicial activism by that's such that's um, such bullshit <laughs> like i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt you but that's such bullshit anyway by by um more liberal um appointees of, of courts across the country and one way to combat that idea especially as this society continues to grow in its complexity. It grows in representation, right? So it was just announced that the first Black and first LGBTQ identifying press secretary was being appointed, right, at the White House. So we're seeing more of these moments of where people who were excluded are being granted rights and opportunities, especially through the courts. And and this is one area of, I'd say, backlash for some of that progress, right, is to be able to then um, have better control of the courts, because now you know you're electing people based off of a political ideology and affiliation rather than any type of judicial record, right? Yeah, a merit system, yeah. Does he does he mean like like you know do they mean judicial activism like 
I don't know, overturning 50 year old precedents, like that kind of judicial activism. Um, it is like both claimed like, that we're being attacked by liberal activist judges on the same week that the US Supreme Court is poised, right, to overturn Roe versus Wade. Right. <laughs> like, like, as, like dis dismantling the constitutionally protected right to privacy um, and the other cases on, uh, uh, on which that, you know, right stands, like that kind of judicial activism. I just, you know, uh, I, I just, I don't, I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about it. It just, uh, I, my hope is, you know, if this gets, if this gets through and it gets on the ballot, um, you know, I, I think there are some pretty moneyed interests that would be behind, uh, not wanting to see this happen. And I hope they would put some, I hope they would put some cash behind making sure that this doesn't, this doesn't go through. Um, do we know, has this kind of, uh, I'm, I'm not even going to say reform. I'm going to say this kind of remaking of the judiciary. Has this happened anywhere else in Oklahoma or are we the test case? Mm, that's a good question. I'm, and is this, I, is, is this an Alec, this, is this an Alec bill or did like Greg treat just come up with this? Like, you know, like did Greg treat smoke a bowl and come up with this? Like, I don't between sessions things happen no i um <laughs> I, I would uh that's a good segue though for our next section segment but i think um from what i understand uh senator treat is the author and kind of primary supporter of it um the state chamber i think is endorsing it and then of course ocpa and their involvement leads me to believe that alec is probably involved i'm not aware of it passing anywhere else in the other states however i'm willing to bet that it is being proposed or discussed in a number of other states that are similar to Oklahoma, I would imagine Kansas, Missouri, Alabama, right? Like these Mississippi, Louisiana, um, all of these states, probably Texas as well. I'm certain that some of our listeners will let us know. Uh, Scott, you did make a very important point that I want to uh, hit this again as we move to the next item, but this as a joint resolution is not a bill that the legislature can adopt unilaterally or I guess it's not unilateral when there's two chambers, but the legislature can't pass it. The governor can't sign it. Um, it doesn't become a bill or a law that way. This would have to go onto the ballot because it affects amendments to the state constitution. So it would have to go to a vote of the people. And you're quite right. I think I, I don't know any, I don't, I don't know very many. I do know some attorneys who are not financially well off, right? Like they're good hearted people who like work for legal aid and those organizations, but uh, I think by and large, attorneys seem to be a uh, well-resourced constituency, right? Who might be willing to uh, uh, put their money where their mouth is in opposition to this. Um, that's a big deal. So we'll see thus far the, the current status listeners, if you're interested in making your voice heard about SJR 43, it is currently in a conference committee. However, only the Senate has named conferencees. Uh, Senator Treat, Senator Daniels, Senator Howard, Bullard, Leewright, Floyd, and Boren, or who has been named the House, has not yet named any conferencees. And in fact, the last thing I saw from the House was a story in the Oklahoman that quoted Democrat um, Representative Colin Walkie, who's an attorney, and Republican floor leader John Eccles, who's a Republican. And they both had pretty strong words to say about this measure that were not uh, not supportive. So if this goes anywhere, we'll see what happens. Um, Bailey, I'm going to say this. Bailey just put in our chat that Idaho, Montana, Missouri, 
have all had bills like this over the past couple of years. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely a movement across the country, and I'm pretty sure there's several other states that are mm -hmm. also um, changing um, their judicial appointment system to allow governors to have more control. And yeah. to Andy's point, I'm willing to bet that it's states that have um, Republican governors, right? Yep. And who and are, Republican are majorities yeah. for this measure. So, and not to get like too conspiracy-ish on this, because it's not a conspiracy. It's pretty well documented, and they've been pretty public about it. But uh, the Republican Party had a concerted effort, right, to gerrymander state legislative districts ten years ago, and to do it again, uh, you know, last year. And to take, so they have a majority of state legislatures right now are controlled by Republicans, even where they may not actually, they have an outsized majority of state legislatures. And they've been pretty public about uh, making a goal to, to overtake the, and we'll say just amend or change the judicial system in those states too, right? So that there is a, a partisan takeover. And I would call it out if it was the other party too. This is stuff that the whole reason we have a checks and balances designed government is to be a check and balance on power in this stuff. And when you have one party that is so closely aligned on so many things and their concerted effort is to align the legislative, the executive and the judicial branch behind their ideology, um, it minimizes the voice of the public of everybody. Even if for our listeners who are Republicans, there's a good chance that the things you care about might not be reflected as these these measures become more extreme in their in their partisanization. Well, Andy, it's not healthy for our democracy to not have a independent, nonpartisan panel of judicial experts, right? That we call judges to review information in a way that's blinded from the politics. And the more that we bring politics into the mix of our judicial system, um, the more that we have distrust and the more that it, you know, impacts the stability of our democracy and functioning in, in the way that it should be, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you look over time, when we're looking at landmark decisions that were made in this country, it was through the courts, right? Especially in times of strife and political turmoil, especially like when you're looking like civil rights era and other times in our country, um, that nonpartisan independent entity was able to make judgments in a sound way. And Andy, you, you raise a great point too, that there's also always, there's been flaws in that process too over time where they've made some bad decisions too, right? But at the end of the day, we should have a system that's independent going forward that ensures that the politics of the day don't determine um, what is constitutional, what is not constitutional, what is right or what is wrong, right? Um, and I worry that these changes will lead to the politicization of this third branch that is so critical. That's exactly, exactly right.
yeah, uh, you know, Roe, Brown versus Board of Education, those, while I think are good for society, there, there's certainly plenty of, uh, of other decisions that have been harmful and bad, particularly as you go back, right? Um, what's the, uh, um, what's the big one? Um, Dred Scott, right? That wasn't, am I thinking of Dred Scott correctly? I think it's been, that's the one that basically said that, um, if you were a descendant of a slave that you weren't intended to be a U.S. citizen, right? Like there's in some quotes, in fact, I just pulled the Wikipedia page. Some of the quotes say it is uh, uh, Chief Justice Hughes uh, called it the court's greatest self-inflicted wound. And universally, uh, historian um, Rodriguez, Junius Rodriguez said it's universally condemned as the U.S. Supreme Court's worst decision ever. Um, so they haven't always been good. All right. Well, um, since we're talking about amendments to the state constitution or things going on the ballot, at least, uh, this week, the groups that are promoting uh, a what we call adult use recreational marijuana um, are cleared for signature collection. So starting this past Tuesday, uh, which is, I think, May 3rd, um, they're able to get out there. It's the, the group is called Oklahomans for Sensible Marijuana Laws. So they now have 90 days to collect 94,910 signatures to get the question uh, on the ballot. So that is not a constitutional amendment. That is a statutory amendment. So just a law, not a constitutional change. That petition would essentially, not essentially, it would legalize cannabis for anyone 21 and up and would impose a 15% sales tax, excise tax, on all recreational marijuana sales. Now, that's that tax rate is essentially double what the tax rate currently is on medical marijuana purchases. And the way it would work is like if you still have your medical card and you buy it at a dispensary, it's only 7%. But if you don't have your card, you'd pay an extra, extra 8% tax on that. So... Um, and I've, in fact, I saw some folks this week um, out collecting signatures, had the vests on, clipboards, and it made me a little uh, inspired for how things are happening in Oklahoma because it's been a couple of years since we've had a signature gathering effort. But I love good direct democracy and people out there trying to collect signatures. Well, and Andy, this is already going to be a high turnout. Um, high attention election year for Oklahoma. And if there is a ballot measure related to marijuana, that's going to be another subset of voters who are going to be activated to turn out to vote, you know, especially depending on, you know, should they collect the signatures in time, which election it's going to be, you know, placed on, is it going to be placed in June or August or November, either way, that could be another um, draw for people to, to turn out the vote. Because um, we saw that in 2018, am I correct? Was that when the, the um, medical, thing medical marijuana? I thought it was before that, but it, it all, yeah, anything in the before times kind of blends together. Right? <laughs> anything before 2020. <laughs> yeah, before 2020, I don't remember. I mean, I guess that probably makes sense. 2018 probably makes sense. Um, there was an effort to pass 
or to get this same kind of adult use recreational marijuana on the ballot back in 2019 when I was working on people, not politicians and our anti gerrymandering ballot initiative. And we all got sidelined by the COVID pandemic, right? Couldn't collect signatures when people wouldn't leave the house um, or even open the door to strangers. So this is a, very interesting to see how it goes. Um, and, uh, and we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. I think in the next, uh, um, couple of weeks, I'll see if I can get someone like, uh, Ryan Kiesel on the show to talk about this. Cause I think he's been working. I know he works with a number of cannabis clients. Uh, and so we'll get to see, I, I actually did not reach out to him this week and our, our thoughts are with Ryan uh, his family and everyone else who lives out in Seminole and that part of the state. I know Ryan had some is from bad weather over the past yeah. week. Yeah. I, uh, I texted him the other day and uh, during the storms, cause I wasn't sure if he had family out there and he still does. And so certainly a, a tense night for them. And um, thankfully I, unless it's changed, I haven't seen that anyone was seriously injured or killed in those storms the other night, but golly, I, I used to really enjoy storm season and lately it's, I just don't, right? Like it's, it's now, uh, maybe I'm older, young kids. It just makes me more nervous than it used to. So when it just feels like even with the, um, weather alerts and things that are going out, um, it feels like even it's a majority of the state that's under a tornado watch. Right. And so it normally feels like, oh, it's these few counties over here, these few counties over there. Um, Because the the running joke is always, you know, for for Oklahomans that you get to know where places are around the state and the names of different communities Mm -hmm. during storm season. But now it feels like all of us are in this together. And so um, our thoughts are definitely with um, the people who live in, in Seminole for any of the destruction that they Based. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, um, listeners, you don't know this, but Scott had to leave the program today. It's uh, a schedule conflict, so it's just Bailey and I for the rest of the episode. And Scott's going to be sad, I think, that to miss out on the fact that we're now going to talk about barbecue. Barbecue? Well, not really barbecue. We're going to talk about <laughs> uh, we're talking about corruption related to barbecue um, and the latest with the uh, the Swadley's saga. I guess is probably a good way to say it right is that the the house the state house panel that was formed i guess last week to investigate the department of tourism has set their first meeting and uh have, have issued some subpoenas um who is uh most well, andy before we get into this i definitely want to give kudos in my i guess regular times of lifting this um to our independent journalism bodies like non-doc the frontier oklahoma watch who have done excellent coverage and then i'll also lift the oklahoman because Uh they were able to get some um key interviews and information that are helping to piece together the story of what got us here and, and what happened um to where swatley's was able to get all of this money, you know, through backdoor deals and and not following through on, you know, government processes, which isn't necessarily on Swatley's, but more so on the government side, right? And figuring out where 
things slip through the cracks and who's responsible. And so just want to give kudos to um, our bodies of journalism out there for getting us this good information. That's right. The the fourth estate, as the, as the uh, press is called. I don't really know what that means, but I'm I'm equally glad that they're out there doing this work. Also, um, one outlet you didn't mention that I think is worth a plug for the next story we'll talk about, but Fox 25, right? The Oklahoma City um, local Fox affiliate, not not Rupert Murdoch Fox News, but just the local uh, local affiliate. They had a number of stories about this and KFOR as well uh, about the, the education funding stuff. So we'll get into that in a second, but back back to barbecue. Ooh-wee. So they've uh, they've subpoenaed Mike Jackson, who is the director of Loft, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, and Stephen Harp, who is the director of OMES, um, to testify at their first meeting. Bailey, what do you what do you make out of those those people being subpoenaed first? Well, um, the purpose of particularly Loft being created, right, was to better streamline where our dollars are going um, and to ensure a fiscal transparency in um, the processes. The the legislature, uh, and then I include the governor, you know, within that triangle, their only responsibility, right, is to like pass a state budget and to handle the fiscal matters of the state, that's their constitutional responsibility, right? And so when we create entities like Loft, they have involvement or obligation to ensure that um, things are happening in line with the processes set that ensure ethical contracts are made and that our tax dollars are spent responsibly thereof right and so those two entities will give key information on where the the breakdown happened right because there's a whole lot of you know finger pointing i think about like that uh, meme of like the spider-mans all Mm -hmm. pointing at each other because for example with um the executive branch is saying that you know rules weren't followed and and you know they definitely want to stop corruption but the contractor swadley's is pointing the finger back saying um y'all told us we could do this and you helped us do this right and so um getting to the entities that are responsible for um a bringing these contracts in but then also ensuring that they're going through the process is going to be key um to have their testimonies of of what exactly happened and who should be held accountable i mean at this point it's uh it's approaching like soap opera status right where the governor is like brent swadley well his spokesperson carly atchison called him brett swadley in one tweet right bront they're they're all good dogs bront but they basically like i don't i don't know the man i've never no idea we have no relationship and then and even before that there was a controversial tweet Weeks oh, prior to everything yeah. going haywire of one of the governor's staffers taking a picture with a drink and a Swadley's burger saying, oh, I love this food, even though there was an investigation in the midst. Right. right. And now all of a sudden burger. there's been a 180 in association yeah. completely. So, yeah. but it just felt like I think all those 
this might have all been this week. It all runs together, but the governor was like, I don't know the man. I have no relationship. And then Brent Swadley had an interview where he was like, I can't believe you said that. I was in tears. And everyone's like, okay, this is getting a little silly now. Because it like, was rumored that the what whoever was talking to whom was like, oh, I know the governor. I'm going to just text the governor. And, and that's alleged, the alleged language that went out. So to be like, but they're, you know, Admittedly, there's I don't a know this difference. guy. Then right. yeah, it's it's yeah. who's telling the truth. <laughs> well, yeah, because Swadley like posted a picture of them together and and whatever. And like, like I, I've met Governor Stitt. I met Governor Fallon a number of times and had lovely conversations. But we, she doesn't know me from Adam. Like we don't have a relationship. Right now, what what could come out in the investigation here? Right, I think they're starting broad. They're starting with the agency directors, and they will, you know, narrow down into some of the key names. Um, but is there a paper trail? Is there tangible documentation that shows that that somehow Stitt was involved? I could see at this level, maybe he's not. And in fact, uh, you know, one name that I would expect that Loft or the, that the House panel would call is uh, Gino DeMarco, right? Who is the um, former now deputy director of tourism. And, you know, he was the uh, PPE czar. We've mentioned him on the show before. Yeah, the guy um, who created this new business to then bring in. Yeah, he bought he, like 26 acres right by, uh, like adjacent to Lake Murray um, with a marina and all this stuff. And this was a story in the Oklahoman, again, from Dave Cathy, who's a, has a history as an investigative reporter, but now is the, the food dude, right? And so um, the fact that it came out that during all of this development that DeMarco back in February of 2020 bought these properties and, you know, they're saying, well, he sold them before all this stuff happened. And it still just smells a little funny. Right. And because why, why would he, who was involved in all this and who, you know, we do know like has a relationship with Brett Swadley and has a relationship with former director Winchester and the governor, he was in the middle of all of this and there was a business transaction. And if it was me again, this is maybe, it's, maybe this is me, but like if you're in that role, you have to be above board. There is an expectation that you rise above and you have no appearance of malfeasance. And, and you know what keeps that appearance of malfeasance following process, <laughs> going through the government steps of procurement and other things to ensure that, there is no bias in the selection processes and that things yeah. are happening um, in an accountable way. And, and those things didn't happen. And it's somewhat uh, funny to me, Bailey, to be honest, because like he bought the property through his property company called DeMarco property. So like if he was trying to hide stuff, he didn't do a very good job because it's named after him. Right. Like if you're going to if you're going to do a crime, as they say, like you should maybe try to hide your tracks a little bit. I'm not saying this is a crime. I'm just saying like it was very. Uh, not well hidden. And maybe that's the point. Maybe he was... Or just elevated questions, right? It just brought more attention. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's happening. So we'll see what comes out of that. The uh, The first meeting of that House panel is next week or the week after. I just closed that tab, so I forget the exact date. But in the background, as we mentioned, uh, the other big news story this week that relates to state government is with uh, State Education Secretary Ryan Walters and some pretty big questions about 
his involvement uh, and with how the uh, the state administration spent some essentially like COVID related dollars, right, to uh, certain families. And I think we talked about this last week on the show. Uh, the big question that came out, I guess this was this morning, so today's Friday the 6th, is the uh, the Frontier and Oklahoma Watch requested like a month ago copies of these audit reports um, that were prepared by uh, former uh, OMS, well, no, former state finance secretary, Jill Geiger and her firm that looked into how this money was being spent. She, they submitted three reports, but the administration only released two of them. Why only two? Is my question. There should be three. These are all taxpayer-funded reports that are about taxpayer money being spent um, by taxpayer-funded individuals. This is this surely meets the criteria for open records, um, but we have not we have not seen that third report. And again, mainly to go back to what we said, when things are hidden or kept from the public, it causes them to smell a little funny. Well, um, in that piece from Oklahoma Watch, it says Sticks, Sticks, Stitz spokesperson Carly Atchison claimed Thursday in a statement to Oklahoma Watch and the Frontier that the state had instead prepared the Bridge the Gap report, so that third one, uh, for a potential lawsuit against the for-profit company that oversaw the relief program, making it exempt from the Oklahoma Open Records Act. So they said, based on the fact that it was going to be used towards a lawsuit, that it doesn't qualify um, to be released through the Open Records Act. And that um, that it's in draft form to determine if further work is necessary so that report is not yet complete. This uh, I will say this again. The Open Records Act, the Oklahoma Open Records Act, is not designed, it is not written to be uh, limiting. It is designed to set the floor, right? The minimum. It establishes the minimum of what must be released. It is not at all set the maximum that is allowed. Agencies, officials are allowed to release as much as they'd like, barring some kind of court order saying they can't. And that is not the case here. Now, they don't have to. There are exceptions that allow them to not, but they still could if they wanted to, right? So if they want to do the right thing, they still can. If they want to release the report, they still can. And we saw this with the EPIC audit, right? Where the AG's office and the state administration chose not to release it. And the state auditor was like, this deserves to be out there. And her office released it. So I-, I And got an award, I believe, right? For their work related yes. to- Yes, that's right. She won an award for her investigation. Come on. And regardless. Well, and part of the reason that there's still more work and that it's in draft form is because based on this piece from Oklahoma Watch in the Frontier, that there was alleged fraud in the way that the monies were spent and who they were spent on. So the monies were intended to go to school supplies 
um, with this pandemic relief funding. And it was instead spent on video game consoles and barbecues, smokers, mm-hmm. um, TVs and smartwatches and other things that aren't related to the purpose. And so that might be another reason why that particular report is not being released because they want to figure out what things they want to do to to do damage control and also to um, hold accountable this this company that, you know, was contracted with not through the process that the state has for procurements and things, but um, that they they made this mistake in giving the money monies out in this way. Yeah, I think, you know, if I'm going to be generous in in this assessment, but I think what the administration was trying to do, and this is being very generous, was to move money very quickly. And that made some sense because people needed school supplies and whatnot. However, they skipped some very important steps that are, some again, some checks and balances that exist in the process to ensure that money, taxpayer money, is being spent appropriately, right? And those those steps involve, you know, a, a competitive bidding process to make sure that we're selecting the best firm with the best oversight and infrastructure in place to administer a program like this. If you're going to spend tens of millions of dollars, you want to make sure that they're going to do a good job with it, not just go quickly, right? I could very quickly drop $20 million from an airplane And we could say, we distributed that money back to taxpayers. We just a blanket, right? Yes, you blanketed the city with dollar bills in the sky. You got the money out very quickly, but that is not the way to do it. So just because you were prioritizing speed might mean that you were compromising on security, efficacy, right? Some of those things. This is one of the reasons why the government rarely works as rapidly as it does and getting money out quickly without parameters and regulation and things like that. Cause a lot of people, you know, chalk that to like, Oh, that's bureaucracy. But the reality is, is when those safeguards aren't in place and structures, it leads to too much flexibility where moments happen where things could slip through the cracks and things could be, you know, misspent. Another element that makes this, more, I guess, urgent is the fact that the U.S. Department of Education's Office of the Inspector General has opened an inquiry on how the state used those funds, right? Uh, Because remember, all of these funds come down from the federal government, and it's a rarity that the government just says, here's money, state of Oklahoma, go spend it how you need. Um, And it's also one of the reasons why Um, I think the legislature took a more um, intentional approach in how it's designed the American Rescue Plan Act funding process, right? I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's taken a long time and all this kinds of stuff, but they're really trying to do their due diligence, right? And making sure they're aligning with federal guidelines that they can do what's needed to be done for auditing purposes and spend the money in ways that are going to be most effective for um, helping Oklahomans, right? In areas where we need it most, right? And so um, we're seeing, I guess, two ends of 
the spectrum when it comes to you know federal release funds. And I just hope that you know with this break today that it doesn't lead to people having distrust or no confidence in our state government in handling you know the influx of pandemic relief funds. Right, right. I mean, I think you know at the end of the day we want to know that our taxpayer dollars are being spent responsibly yeah. and that they are demonstrating value, right? Like most people don't have a problem paying taxes provided that we feel like we're getting a good value for that money. Right. And, that, and we know yeah. how it's being used. Right. And I don't No one I know paid taxes with the expectation that someone else would get money to buy TVs and barbecues. Right. And like, I didn't get that money. I would have kept it if I was going to do that myself. And so, you know, is it expected that maybe a few people would misspend money? Sure. And they, they would be normally required to like pay that back, right? Like if you misspent the money and clearly this organization knows what they spent it on. That's how we got this number. Right. And so why were, why was someone not reviewing these reports being like, Oh, Hey, you can't buy that TV, take it back, you know, or pay the money back. But now it's months later and we're just now playing catch up and, you know, everyone's kind of raising their hands being like, I don't know what happened, man. So the other thing that I think is silly, or, and maybe I'm not uh, not a consultant enough, but by stonewalling these reports now, right, and trying to, trying to manage the news cycle today, they run the risk that this stuff will come out closer to the election. And it will come out, right? Especially if it's involved in some kind of court proceeding. This is all under discovery. It will come out at some point why would you not try to manage the the story now rather than risk it coming out the middle of june or the middle of you know middle of october right like if this is the october surprise that costs the governor or secretary walters the election that seems like a huge miscalculation uh in their in their approach to this maybe i'm wrong well, we'll i guess we'll find out if and when it comes out or maybe another you know lens of they're they're trying to process the information i mean there's been a lot going on right especially over the past year on these allegations of corruption from you know the swally situation was going on with epic and now you know this subset of federal relief dollars through this bridge the gap digital wallet program and so maybe this is you know with things coming to the light. They're having to scramble to figure out, you know, what is really going on and what's the the plan and direction that they want to take. And it seems like going after, you know, that contractor that they worked with on distributing the funds, it seems like the angle that they're going to go with, which then gives them time of like, look, when we saw the corruption, we went after it. And, and this is how we're demonstrating accountability, right? So... I guess time will tell on, on what's going to happen. Yeah, I guess we'll find out what an interesting year it's going to be. Well, and and also there's been transition in um, the governor's cabinet once again. So, Yeah, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so um, the current um, Secretary of Commerce um, has... Um, transitioned from the the cabinet that person has gone back into 
uh, private sector work. And so this is the third um, Secretary of Commerce to have um, left the administration. So. Yeah, that's true. And it's not uncommon for cabinet members to, you know, shift around during a term, but having three in that position in four years seems a little unusual. And he, I forget who it was, but he worked for Goldman Sachs, I think. He left Goldman Sachs to come to the administration and is going back. And I think has already left the state. So um, we'll see. And who knows? I mean, the governor might appoint someone new, whoever the whoever the governor is after, you know, next year um, or after the election this year might appoint somebody new, even if it is uh, Governor Stitt. So I guess we'll find out and see what happens then. But it does seem like the Commerce Secretary leaving in the midst of budget negotiations <laughs> seems ill-timed. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our episode this week. Bailey, thank you for being here. Of course. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, please, if you haven't uh, shared our podcast with your friends or family lately, why don't you do that? Send them a link. You can go to letspodthis.com. And uh, that's the that's the direct link right to our page. You can send it or just, you know, send them from whatever app you use to listen to it. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, any of those things, really. Anywhere podcasts are found, which seems like everywhere. I saw a list the other day, Bailey, of all the podcast apps. And there was like 80-something apps uh, and websites, most of which I'd never even heard of. And I was so perplexed of like, who listens to these other platforms. I don't have time to go through them and see if one is better than the other. Apple and Spotify seem to work fine for me. I hear you. I feel like we've moved from like book culture to like podcast, like audiobook culture. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, make this long form and do a, do a book. I tried listening to uh, somebody's book the other day. Oh, Barack Obama's most recent book. And it's like 27 hours long. And I was like, oh, man, I'm gonna, this is going to take me six years to finish this. <laughs> or a couple of drives to like the East Coast or the West Coast. <laughs> That's right. That's all I'll do. That's what I did last time. We drove uh, from Oklahoma to North Carolina a couple of years ago. And we listened to um, Amy Poehler's book on the way out there and Michelle Obama's book on the way back. And didn't, that was a long book, too. We didn't get through it all. So, All right, listeners. Well, um, thanks for being here this week. Remember that decisions are made by those who show up. See you next week.